So normally this um, might be like to the day and try to follow immediately after my kind of television lectures. Rebecca had a schedule conflict in between. So I definitely do follow follow through sort of this, this is sort of an extension of the psychoskeleton lectures where I try and talk a little bit more about what this I'll give you a few more examples of what the cytoskeleton does. And so what I've talked about so far is how what, what cytoskeletal elements are, what, what the subunits are made up of, the motors, um, some examples like chromosome segregation, vesicle transport. And, and really, you can think of today and Friday as two more examples, going into greater detail, of the, how the cytoskeleton contributes to a couple of other important cell functions. The first one is going to be cell interactions with the extracellular matrix. So how do they adhere to whatever um, non-cellular, extracellular substrate they're on? Cytoskeleton has a key role in that. Um, and, and then I'll probably talk about how cell, two cells interact with each other in more detail. So, hopefully it'll be kind of smooth. So, uh, some learning objectives. I'm not going to focus too much on rehashing the cytoskeletal stuff on the test. So, this is sort of meant to be what's the new stuff that'll be on test questions. The next exam. So one of the th key things you're going to want to do is to be able to identify the major family of cell adhesion molecules and their role in uh, both normal cell adhesion and some examples of human disease. So in all of these cases, the cell adhesion molecules obviously have to adhere to something on the outside of the cell, but at the cytoplasmic phase of the membrane, they're also almost always interacting with either um, intermediate filaments or uh, actin filaments. So I want you to be able to recognize the role of uh, cell matrix interactions, not just as adhesion molecules that stick cells to a matrix or to, to other cells, but I want you to recognize that they play important roles in signal transduction activity. Okay, so, so just like a growth factor binds to a receptor and triggers a signal inside the cell, a cell adhesion molecule binds to what we usually call a ligand, and that can be an extracellular matrix protein or it can be another cell adhesion molecule, and it triggers important cell signaling activity that works its way all the way to the nucleus. So you should really think of this analogously to how you've been thinking about a, a, a cytokine or a growth factor binding to a receptor on the cell. Um, and then at the end, I'm going to spend just a little bit more time talking about the row family GTPases and, and giving you another uh, review of how uh, uh, small monomeric GTPases, in this case the row family, uh, function. So we do like to talk about disease in this class, so I'm going to talk a little bit at various points uh, over the next few days about uh, the role of cell adhesion molecules in, in just growth of cancer and, and cancer metastasis. Um, obviously cancer metastasis involves cells in a tumor detaching from the tumor that they started out in, going somewhere else and reestablishing themselves at another site in the body. So that involves a lot of changes in adhesiveness as they let go of the tumor they started out in, have to migrate to wherever they're going to end up and then adhere to their, at their new site. Um, so 
a little bit about cardiovascular disease, not, not too much, a little bit about inflammatory disorders, and a little bit about infection and wound healing. But um, sort of uh, cancer growth will start out with, um, and, and then I'll spend a bit of time this year on inflammatory responses uh, mediate, and, and the sort of the role of cell adhesion molecules in mediating cellular inflammation. All right, so this is the first uh, little red star slide that you want to spend some time being familiar with. And what this slide shows you is pretty much all of the junctions that I'll talk about today and Friday. So there are cell matrix junctions. Here's an epithelial cell with an apical side and a basal side, and it's attached to a basal lamina. And that's an example of a cell matrix adhesion. Um, you've already seen an example of cell matrix adhesion when I talked about cell locomotion and the cell extending its, pseudo, uh, its leading edge and making new focal contact adhesions to the substrate. Um, those are shown right here. Then there are cell, uh, cell adhesions um, where two cells are sticking together. Uh, then there are cell-cell adhesions that don't just stick two cells together, but they actually form um, a barrier to diffusion of molecules between layers of cells. So I think you all know that since uh, endothelial and epithelial cell layers, one of the goals is to keep the outside stuff out and the inside stuff in and regulate what moves across the, the, the cell layer. And in order to do that, you have to prevent molecules from just uh, non-specifically moving between two cells. And so there are special structures called type junctions that we'll talk about to do that. And there are another specialized type of cell junction called gap junctions which allow information to pass from one cell to another, like a little, like a little tunnel here uh, for molecules to pass between two cells. So uh, this is a good uh, review slide when it's coming up on the next test to uh, give yourself uh, an overview when you're busy thinking about uh, 20 different things in these classes. This is a good overview slide. Um, why do I have this one up here? Um, Probably a little redundant to the last slide. Oh, it lets me point out that these little uh, red and blue lines are meant to represent actin filaments and intermediate filaments. And so it reminds me to tell you that at the cytoplasmic side of cell cell and cell matrix adhesion sites, uh, both intermediate filaments and actin filaments uh, uh, are anchored and play a role in maintaining those adhesions. There are others like uh, gap junctions and tight junctions where if there are cytoskeletal interactions with those molecules, they seem to be a little less important or at least a little less dynamic or we're just still too ignorant about them. Um, so, so most of the junctions that are primarily adhesive junctions, holding cells to the matrix or to other cells, have either actin or intermediate filament anchored at the cytoplasmic base of the membrane, and that helps hold them together. So you now know that intermediate filaments are important in, in giving cells structural tensile integrity. So it makes them resistant to mechanical disruption. And one of the main ways it does that is by thinking of these as like steel cables that are attaching to the desmosomes. And here it just shows them ending in the cytoplasm. It's just a diagram. But they don't really just end in the cytoplasm. They're all, you know, interconnected in this big meshwork of, of intermediate filaments. But they help um, give strength to these adhesions between cells and between cells and the, and the uh, substrate. Um, 
So, okay, so this is just a, a diagram um, showing you in a little closer detail an example of the cell-to-cell -cell adhesion. You'll learn the names of all these adhesion molecules, um, but these happen to be uh, the prototypical example that people usually talk about when they talk about cell-cell junction. They're called cadherins. Anybody ever heard of a cadherin? Okay, I'll, I'll tell you more about those. Uh, and so they're, uh, the cadherins uh, are made up of uh, several repeating subunits that are, are very similar in structure, and they have a short cytoplasmic tail that spans the membrane here, uh, or a, a transmembrane region, and then a short cytoplasmic tail uh, reaching into the cytoplasm. Um, and the, one of the themes that I'll be talking about is the fact that these short cytoplasmic tails, what are they doing in the cytoplasm? They're interacting with molecules that kind of collectively are called adapter proteins or linker proteins because they link the cytoplasmic demand and cell adhesion molecule to some sort of cytoskeletal filament system. So adapter proteins or linker proteins will be a, a bit of a theme that I talk about. Um, and then this is just an example of a cell uh, matrix interaction. Um, these are members of a family of adhesion molecules called immigrants. Um, hope you've heard about them at some point. They're far and away the most important cell adhesion molecule family in mammals. Just flat out there, they, they, they play an incredibly important role. Um, many of them, if you knock out, even uh, they, they happen to be um, uh, composed of two non-identical uh, subunits. And many, many of these integrant subunits, if you knock them out of the mouse globally, the mouse doesn't even get past embryonic day two or three. They just can't form the structures that are needed uh, during embryonic development, so they're incredibly important. And they also have adapter proteins that link uh, to both intermediate filaments, as shown in this slide, but also to actin filaments. Okay, so that's a little bit of an overview. So what I want to do is give you, uh, just as an example, um, the important, to, to illustrate the importance of cell adhesion molecules in cancer metastasis. This is a great example because it lets me point out to you that if you start out uh, with a primary tumor, there's a lot of cells growing uncontrollably, and they interact with each other. They're frequently, uh, usually derived from um, a, a, a cell that undergoes a mutation and becomes transformed. Uh, it divides uncontrollably, and it forms a tumor. Okay, when a person has a tumor, it's a bit of semantics, but do they really have cancer? Most people would say that if the tumor hasn't spread to another site, they just have a tumor. They don't really have cancer. Cancer is this disease in which cells become transformed, they form a tumor, and we are not able to, to our immune systems aren't able to deal with that tumor. Uh, and then, uh, in really bad cases, even medical intervention can't really deal with that tumor. And what sort of, what sort of, Distinguishes a tumor from cancer, when it comes right down to it, is the ability of the cells in the tumor to detach themselves, separate themselves from the primary tumor, generally, most of the time, enter the bloodstream, move through the bloodstream, leave the bloodstream from some other site in the body, and establish yet another tumor. Okay, that's metastasis. Um, and this is a terrible thing to have happen, but it's a wonderful example for considering the importance of cell adhesion in a, in a human disease. Because 
when the tumor cells are growing, if they stay tightly adhered to each other, you discover the tumor, a surgeon can go in and remove it, your chances of recovery are very, very good. But once the cell in the primary tumor um, becomes metastatic, that is, it acquires the ability to let go of the other cells around it, lose the cell cell adhesions from the other tumor cells, migrate, crawl uh, through some tissue um, until it can find its way into a blood vessel um, and then get carried along until it adheres somewhere along the endothelial layer that lines the blood vessel and then migrates out into uh, some other distal site, distal tissue site. Um, so that involves adhesion, loss of adhesion, carrying through the bloodstream, regaining adhesion, uh, acquiring or reacquiring the ability to, to crawl, to move to another spot, and then all these cells then re-adhering to each other and forming another tumor. So a lot of turning on and off of, of cell adhesion uh, in this process. So this is a good process uh, to keep in mind and a good process for me to be able to find out if you understand a lot of these basic principles of cell adhesion by asking you in an exam to explain some of the things that are happening. And I'll talk to you about the things that are happening um, in an example of uh, tumor metastasis. So if I ask you a question on the exam about tumor metastasis, and I almost always do, uh, I'm getting, I'm trying to find out if you understand some of the basic principles I'm going to talk about in the next couple of days uh, that govern how cells adhere to each other, how that adhesion is regulated, lost, and reacquired. Okay, does that make sense? That means study the tumor metastasis stuff for the test. So, a little bit of memorization here. I do expect you to memorize the names of the five primary cell adhesion molecule families. They're responsible for all of the cell-cell and cell matrix interactions I'll talk about. Um, one of them is the integrins, uh, the select, the uh, cadherins, the selectins, the immunoglobulin superfamily, and the mucin-like, mucin sort of means sugar, um, like CAM. So CAM stands for cell adhesion molecule. And we'll come to these in turn. So these are diagrams then of those major cell adhesion molecule families. One uh, whole section of the slide includes just one family, the cadherins. And that's because cadherins bind to other cadherins. So the ligand for a cadherin is another cadherin molecule. This is called a homophilic interaction. In the case of integrins, integrins always bind to, integrins never bind to other integrins. They always bind to different molecules, like an extracellular matrix protein like fibronectin, or in a later example, you'll, you'll see um, members actually of the immunoglobulin superfamily of cell adhesion molecules. So when these, uh, these molecules like integrins that bind to other different types of molecules are called uh, heterophilic uh, cell adhesion molecule interactions. So I will throw out the word homophilic and heterophilic, um, and I expect you to, to understand what I'm, what I'm referring to. I won't necessarily define that, uh, say, in an exam question. Um, but immunoglobulin superfamily molecules are generally uh, homophilic interactions. It turns out now, as we learn more, that's not true 100% of the time, but it's true probably 98 or 99% of the time. 
for the purposes of this class, I think that immunoglobulin, some of these molecules as mediating heter homophilic interactions between uh, other type, other uh, IG superfamily members. So you may be asking yourself, IG immunoglobulin, are these antibody molecules? Okay, they're not antibody molecules. They're called immunoglobulin family because they have these disulfide-linked globular domains in them that look a lot like the globular domains uh, that make up the heavy uh, and light chains, most of the heavy chains of antibody molecules, of immunoglobulin molecules, but they are not themselves antibody molecules. They just have domains that are similar to antibody molecules. Think of it this way. If these adhesion molecules had been discovered first, antibody molecules would be said to have adhesion molecule-like domains in them. Okay. Antibodies have just been known in the structure known about since the 1960s. These were discovered much later. Okay, and then so the other group here, two that I want to mention are the selectins and the mucin-like. Um, uh, cell adhesion molecule domains. They're glycoproteins, they contain um, a lot of sugar in them, and um, selectins uh, always uh, interact with these uh, mucin-like, uh, sugar-like cell adhesion molecules. So selectins are pretty easy to, to learn about. There's only three of them, uh, E, P, and L selectin. They're found almost exclusively on cells of the immune system. Really, a lot in lymphocytes. Um, they're, they're, they play big roles in um, the lymphatic system. Uh, integrins are found everywhere. Uh, Ig superfamily cell adhesion molecules are found uh, everywhere. Um, adherins are found everywhere. Okay, so I'm going to spend the next few minutes talking about integrins and. The reason I'm going to do that is because they're one of the most important adhesion molecules um, that, that we're going to talk about. And, and, and that's because not only do they mediate um, the vast majority of cell interactions with the extracellular matrix, um, they're, they're present, integrins are present on, on every cell in the body. Um, with one exception, they're not present in red blood cells or erythrocytes. So they're everywhere and they mediate. Um, almost all, they play a role in almost all cell interactions with the extracellular matrix. This is a table that I don't mean for you to memorize, but it illustrates a couple of things that I want to tell you about that you do need to know. You need to know that integrin, subunit, integrin adhesion molecules are made up of two subunits, two non-identical subunits, so that They're not made up of two identical subunits. They're always different. And there are a few different designations for naming them. Um, the nomenclature for integrins is horrendous. So I'm just going to ask you to sort of be familiar with the nomenclature that's shown on this slide. And that is that one subunit is referred to as the alpha subunit, and one subunit is referred to as the beta subunit. There are a lot of different beta subunits. Okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, I don't know how many there are now, over a dozen. There's a lot of alpha subunits, not as many different alpha subunits as there are 
pages, but there's lots of different ones. Now, in some of my slides, they'll be labeled, like when I get them from textbook, with different sort of nomenclature. So I don't remember to explain to you when that time comes. Raise your hand and ask them so you don't understand that. So sometimes they have totally different names. This is the, the most straightforward and very common type of nomenclature. So the important thing is they're made up of different uh, subjects, one alpha and one beta. This particular combination of an alpha subunit and a beta subunit, alpha 1, beta 1, is a very, very prevalent uh, heterodimer combination. And it's found on many cells. And in terms of what does it bind to, what are its ligands, alpha 1, beta 1 integrins mainly bind collagens. Okay. So one thing that you need to come away with here is the fact that the ligand specificity for an integrand is very precise. This integrand is not going to bind very well at all to fibronectin, whereas this antibody, alpha-5 combined with the beta-1, binds the heck out of fibronectin. It is a very high affinity receptor for fibronectin. So the ligand specificity is determined by which two subunits get together and form a Integrin subunits virtually never exist on their own. They form a complex uh, either in or immediately after being produced in the endoplasmic reticulum. So they really don't exist as individual subunits. They're very unstable as individual subunits. So they form uh, pairs with uh, very, very early, uh, immediately, virtually immediately upon being synthesized. So you get some idea of the range of different types of cells um, that have these different integrins. Um, this one, alpha Roman numeral 2b, beta 3, which is alpha Roman numeral 2, is different than alpha heritage number 2, um, is just the platelet surfaces are just covered with this alpha 2b beta 3 uh, integrin. And it's uh, an integrin that is very important in blood clotting, for instance. So when a platelet needs to form a clot, uh, these integrins get turned on, they get activated, and they form a uh, clot. So they form complexes, and they form with other things, like uh, subunits, so like alpha, alpha 1, beta 1, multiple more alpha 1, beta 1 complexes? Or? So you're talking about, like, here, here we've got, a, this is a good question, I think something you've got, let me make sure I've got your question on, if you've got a, a, a lipid bilayer and you've got an alpha 1 and a beta 1, are you asking do they form groups with other alpha 1, beta 1? Yeah, yes, the answer is yes. Okay, that's a good question. And I'll get to that, and I will get to that. Because that's one of the ways in which they work cooperatively with really strong bonds to other, other surfaces. Okay, so I need you to recognize how they form these pairs, the fact that which alpha combines with which beta subunit determines um, what, what the ligand that it's bound, that it binds to best is, and you need to just recognize, you don't have to memorize the distribution, but just recognize that not all integrin heterodimer pairs are present in all cells. There's uh, cell type specificity there. Okay. Um, 
So this, uh, this slide I put in just to give me a chance to pause and see if anybody has any questions, which you just did. That's great. Um, this is meant to illustrate a collagen molecule. Um, this is, I think, meant to represent a, a fibronectin molecule. Yeah, fibronectin with this little purple thing here. And then there's other types of molecules in here. But what this is meant to illustrate is that integrins don't just interact. When we say um, this integrin, which is binds to collagen, um, when we say alpha-1, beta-1 is a, is a binds to collagen, it doesn't just bind collagen and nothing else. And the reason for that is because most extracellular matrix proteins like collagen and fibronectin and laminin, um, as well as a lot of proteoglycans, they all bind to each other as well. And to make it even more complex, a lot of growth factors and cytokines bind to the extracellular matrix. So I don't want to give you the impression with a table like this that one integrin binds one extracellular matrix protein and it's just as simple as that. They form, uh, they, they bind with specificity, but most extracellular matrices are very complex mixtures of lots of, well, all of them are complex mixtures of different extracellular uh, proteins. The only time you ever get a pure uh, surface of, of extracellular matrix proteins is in the laboratory. For instance, when you take a, a bottle and buy a bottle of purified fibronectin or a bottle of purified collagen and you put it down on a plastic dish or a glass slide, um, initially it's just that. But even then, as soon as the cells sit down on them and adhere to them, the cells start pumping out fibronectin, collagen, vitronectin, laminin, and they create their own elaborate 3D extracellular matrix. So don't get the, the, the it's, it's a, it's a complex, the extracellular matrix is this complex mixture of lots of different proteins. And that uh, has implications both for adhesion itself, but also for the signal transduction function that I'll, I'll eventually get to here that I mentioned in the introduction. Okay. Um, this just lists a few different kinds of matrix proteins. And really what it's meant to illustrate, not, all, not just that there are um, cardioglycans, collagens, um, what are sometimes called multi-adhesive matrix proteins. Um, point is, they actually have lots of different shapes. So collagens, you know, are these um, uh, like ropes of uh, uh, collagen fibrils, uh, fibers that, that fibers that form in, into a fibril. Um, some of them um, have very different shapes, uh, uh, some collagens. Um, proteoglycans tend to have um, protein pores with lots of sugar molecules coming off of them. So the point here is that the ligands are not, for integrins, are not that similar to each other, really. There's lots, they look different. So when that, that makes sense because integrins have evolved to be able to bind with great specificity to these different shapes that they see in the extracellular matrix. So this is just a slide to illustrate um, just how important some matrix proteins are. The uh, collagen 2 knockout, uh, global knockout, or perlican global knockout compared to a wild-type mouse. Um, and I think this, in each case, is stained for... Actually, I'm not sure what it's stained for. Um, but obviously, you can see the skeleton here um, and just how messed up the, the global knockouts are. It's meant to show you that, hey, look, these are important. These mice are set. 
Yeah, thank you. I thought pretty messed up, she sort of sums up. So they're really important because if you don't have them, things aren't good. Not just if you're a mouse. I mean, things aren't good if you're a mouse to begin with. Even this guy doesn't exactly. But uh, there are human, there are human diseases um, in which uh, people generally don't globally lack uh, these molecules, but have mutations in them. So I think if they're sort of global, they tend not to ever be born in people. But um, there are a lot of mutations in different uh, extracellular matrix proteins that will lead to a lot of skeletal abnormalities. OK. So now let's give a few specific examples of, uh, of matrix interactions. We're doing OK. OK. Why are interactions between cells and the matrix important to cellular communication during cancer uh, progression? Let's go back to our example of, of cancer metastasis. Okay, first of all, all the cells in the body are surrounded by this complex mixture of extracellular matrix and soluble proteins. And by soluble proteins, I mean things like growth factors and cytokines, which physically bind to extracellular matrix proteins. And so because this extracellular matrix combine growth factors and cytokines, they, they serve as a, as a site where it can concentrate um, cytokines and growth factors that might otherwise be present in a fairly diffuse, low concentration throughout the, the extracellular media. Um, but because they combine to the extracellular matrix, it concentrates them right there where cells can, can be influenced by them. So uh, the, the matrix serves as a scaffolding which can concentrate what overall is a fairly dilute um, concentration of cytokines and growth factors, and they can concentrate them right there at the surface of the cell where the growth factor and cytokine receptors are. Um, so, so the fact that growth factors and cytokines can bind to the matrix and concentrate them has a really big influence on cell function. So for instance, if there is a mutation in a growth in a uh, matrix protein that prevents that growth that matrix protein from being able to bind um, you know some some growth factor or some cytokine insulin say. Uh, well actually insulin is a bad example. It doesn't really work that way. Um, but, so I won't get into specifics. But um, say there's a mutation in a matrix protein and it can no longer bind a growth factor very well. That manifests itself as a lack of sensitivity of the cells in the body to that growth factor or cytokine. And that can be confusing because if you actually measure the plasma levels of a growth factor or cytokine, it, it might be just fine in an individual who has some sort of illness. And people scratch their heads for a long time and say, well, the levels of, of these growth factors are, are perfectly normal. Why aren't the cells able to respond to them? So they look for the receptors for those growth factors or cytokines, and it's like, well, growth factor, the receptor or the cytokine receptor seems to be present just fine. And so there are a number of diseases where it's turning out what the problem is. There's plenty of cytokine, there's plenty of cytokine receptor, but the cytokine doesn't bind to collagen or fibronectin or lamina the way it's supposed to. So it can't concentrate it there in the matrix where the cell needs it to be so that it can respond to the cytokine. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's kind of a kind of a key concept, and that's what's um, a 
I'm talking about uh, in this slide. Okay, integrants. A little bit more about integrants. So I've told you that they're made up of two different subunits, an alpha and a beta, and these are different with different colors and different shapes. Um, and you'll notice that this alpha-beta pair uh, doesn't really matter which one it is. I think they're meant to be illustrating alpha 1, beta 1, or alpha 2, beta 1, because it binds the cause, but it doesn't really matter. What I'm going to tell you is true for almost all integrants. So the integrants can exist in a couple of different conformations and transition states between those two conformations. But what I want you to recognize is, is that they can be off or they can be on. That is, they can bind lig their ligand affinity or a gear where they cannot. And that's due to the, the structure of the extracellular domain. And so there's electron microscopy studies that literally suggest that um, if my own forearm and wrist and hand are a collagen molecule, and my hand is the part out of the end that actually binds to the, to the extracellular matrix, that these integrants can be put into a closed conformation in which the binding topic for the extracellular matrix is had a pity. Okay? And that's what needs to be illustrated here. And then something happens to activate the adhesion molecule. It opens up, changes its conformation, and reveals a binding topic for collagen or fibronectin or vitronectin or lambda. Okay? And they can move back and forth between these two states. So this generally is referred to as affinity regulation. How, with, how, with how great an affinity does the adhesion molecule bind to something? And this is not really something that's unique to adhesion molecules. Growth factor receptors uh, can regulate their affinity for a growth factor. They're not always on. So, um, but we're talking about matrix protein or adhesion molecules here, so we'll just stick with that example. So this particular figure, um, I've sort of cropped and out of a book to simplify it. But what I included, what I left here was this molecule in the cytoplasm, which has the name Talon. It's binding to the beta, the cytoplasmic domain of the beta subunit. And you'll notice it's not here in the inactive conformation, but it is binding to the cytoplasmic domain in the active state. That's a vast oversimplification of what's going on, but it's illustrating the point that the molecules in the cytoplasm that bind to the cytoplasmic domain can directly or indirectly, depending on what that word directly means, can regulate the conformation of the extracellular portion. So in this oversimplified example, a molecule of talon binding to the cytoplasmic domain of the beta subunit causes that transition from an inactive to an active conformation so that it can bind collagen. Yeah. Like that end? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And we'll get to that. I'll, I'll sort of build on that here over a couple slides. Absolutely. This is vastly oversimplified, and I'll, I'll provide a little bit more detail. The point so far is that what molecules interact with this cytoplasmic tail, and this is very short, I think for the beta-1 subunits, it's only about 47 amino acids long. 
So what binds to the cytoplasmic tail can have a very great impact on the conformation of the extracellular domain. A lot of the specifics mechanisms are not well understood, but it is clear that the amino acid sequence of the transmembrane domain is important. If you make mutations in the transmembrane domain, uh, you can prevent this ability to, to activate. We knew for a, very early on that if you deleted the cytoplasmic domain or made mutations uh, of amino acids in the cytoplasmic domain, that you screwed up this process. But later on, we found out that mutations, even in the transmembrane domain, which doesn't directly bind proteins in the cytoplasm, that can also prevent activation. So we know that conformational changes in the structure of this transmembrane domains influence the overall conformation of the extracellular domain. Yep? Are there more than two conformations that are possible? Yeah. yeah. So what I said was you sort of you have these two and then you have all these transition states in between and this, this is oversimplifying. So there are all sorts of, of intermediary transitory sites that result in binding of varying affinities between nothing and superglue. So this box that says various adapters and signaling kinases, one of the molecules that's going to this box was that molecule tailing previous slide. There's a ton of other ones. Uh, who's ever heard of insulin receptor substrate? That's a molecule that binds to the cytoplasmic I'll introduce a few more of these in different examples. But the bigger point is that there are a whole lot of adapters um, and, and kinases that combine to these short cytoplasmic tails that not only affect what binds out here, but also these molecules in this box here uh, stimulate your class, all the classic uh, signaling cascades that you already know about, PI3 kinase and AKT, and that happened to be June, the, the MAP kinase pathways, all these pathways that you have heard about and are hearing about in other classes that are activated in response to a growth factor binding to receptor, those same pathways. Um, that, that can be bound um, uh, by, by, by uh, growth factor receptors can also be stimulated by extracellular matrix proteins binding to integrins. But there's one big difference between integrins and growth factor, most growth factor receptors. Most growth, most growth factor receptors have within their cytoplasmic tails intrinsic tyrosine kinase activity. So, so you all are aware, at least at some general level, that tyrosine kinase activation is important in these pathways. You don't understand them fully, maybe, but you know that they're important. The problem with integrins is their cytoplasmic tails don't have any kinase activity. Okay? They're just a string of amino acids that bind other things. But among the other things that they combine, are tyrosine kinases. So we talk about growth factor and cytokine receptors as having intrinsic tyrosine kinase activity. Cell adhesion molecules have no intrinsic tyrosine kinase activity. They have to uh, bind to uh, tyrosine kinases by their cytoplasmic domains. So that's one key thing and to remember. And I think 
but I don't know. But that probably illustrates the fact that part, uh, growth factor receptors find growth factors and stimulate changes in human growth. Cell adhesion molecules do that, but kind of their day job is to just hold cells together to each other or to the matrix. So they can't always be stimulating these signal transduction cascades that lead to changes in gene expression resulting in all these different things. So because their, their primary job, because their primary job is, is cell adhesion, they can't just be signaling all the time. So that's an important distinction to recognize, something I'll try and find out if you've picked up um, throughout the course of these two lectures um, on the exam understand the fun and if, and if I finish talking about this and you still don't know what the hell I'm talking about, come come ask me about it. It's an important concept. But cytokine and growth factor receptors have their own tyrosine kinase activity. So pretty much the only thing that needs to happen is cytokine and growth factor needs to bind and these pathways are turned on. It's like a light switch. Um, the integrant is like, well you turn on a light switch but the wires aren't really quite connected there behind the wall, so you also got to kind of go in there and take the wire and touch it to a copper plate, and then the electricity flows and the lights turn on. So, um, and that's because cells need to be able to use integrins to mediate adhesion to the matrix or to other cells without also always increasing cell proliferation or promoting cell migration, things like that. Okay. That's an important concept. Oh, do I need you to, I mean, I don't need you to know all these. I'm, I'm not going to talk, I'm not going to ask you exact questions about map kinase signaling pathways. I just need you to be aware in general of the difference between intrinsic tyrosine kinase activity and uh, growth factor receptors and Extrinsic? Well, I'm using the word intrinsic to mean that internal to this molecule is the ability to phosphorylate substrates on tyrosine residues. That's what I mean by intrinsic. Okay, so I talked to you about cell locomotion and I mentioned the word focal adhesion, the phrase focal adhesion or focal contact and I'll just spend a few minutes on that now. Cells can have very different shapes when placed onto a very simple extracellular matrix substrate. These are just cells plated onto a, a glass surface which probably purified fibromectin has been absorbed. And they can have lots of different shapes from very spread out to uh, very elongated. Um, and the thing that, um, the main thing that mediates that are these focal adhesions or focal contacts. And so, talked about them in the context of cell locomotion where a crawling, crawling cell needs to form new substrate contacts out of its leading edge. Um, this is mediated by a, a, a integrin molecules. And here we start to see uh, a little bit of, of your question about, well, you know, is this just one molecule? No, it's not. It's, it's, it's hundreds or tens of thousands of integrin molecules that are clustered together. They're binding to whatever they're favorite ligand, the high affinity ligand is on the outside. They are binding to molecules like halon, which I've already mentioned. Here's another one that's very abundant uh, in focal adhesion called vinculin. Here's another one called uh, 
how that tendon would find the cytoplasmic domain of integrin. Um, and, and, uh, and also because, remember, how that tendon is a actin cross-linking protein, it's also binding to actin. Okay? Um, this is my favorite one because this was my postdoc project. I, my claim to fame was I discovered that how that tendon combines to integrin and serve as a link between integrin and actin. But that was a long time ago, but at least it's in textbooks now. Um, it impresses the heck out of my grandkids. Thank you. Thank you. Pardon? So um, here's your myosin molecules. They're they're binding to actin filaments, and they're doing what? They're generating contractility. So here's just some of the things that are going on uh, in the cytoplasm to adhere cells to the substrate, and then here's this sort of whole other signaling arm of things in which tyrosine kinase, in this case it's a protein with a very original name, focal adhesion kinase, which is this brown blob here, and it's not shown in this slide, but it can actually interact also with the cytoplasmic domain of the beta integrin subunit. And it can do the tyrosine kinase activity that is typically intrinsic to growth factor and cytokine receptors. But it can transmit signals to the nucleus. So you sort of always have this adhesive function going on. And then at certain times, the signal transduction component of cell adhesion molecule signaling can be turned off. Yep. To me, I noticed the cytotoxic delay of the alpha-based subunit, which binds to the collagen, is shorter than the other ones. So I also see this baseline. It seems like really short. So is it out, out here? Um, but the cytosol. The cytosol. Yeah. They're very the short. The tailway is shorter than the other one. Yeah. So, so the, the, it, it seems like it's been two hours or something. So this, they don't look that different to me here. But I don't know. Is this what you're talking about? Actually, on the other side, this, this, this part is also shorter. So it doesn't seem like there's uh, a domain here. It's yeah. also fine. Found the, well, it's the extracellular domain that's bound to collagen. Uh huh. So I need to know. The tail is the tail. The cytosol is shorter than that. The one that's kind of higher on. In general, the beta subunit tails are a little bit longer than the alpha subunit tails, but that's not a fast rule. Most most of the beta subunit tails are about 40 to 50 amino acids, and most of the alpha subunits are more like 25 to 35. But don't, you're, you're just reading stuff into these drawings that is not important. I mean, it's fine to and look at that. But that is that what you're saying? That the extracellular domains are just bigger? I mean, that's absolutely true. These are, these are 30 to 40 amino acids. These are hundreds of amino acids. Oh, yeah, that's true. But these are, these are huge. Much longer than the cytoplasmic tips. Yep. Yeah. So, what is the evolutionary advantage of having these sometimes feeling of 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 feeling of
Well, I, I could imagine that um, if you weren't able to regulate it, and that you, every time a cell bound to an extracellular matrix protein and became adhesive, it turned on MAP kinase signaling, that could be a bad thing. Maybe you don't always want to stimulate cell proliferation. Sometimes you want to just, if you're a grown-up cell, you're fully differentiated, you just want to adhere to a basal lamina and be an endothelial cell that's just serving a barrier function. You don't want to keep dividing. You don't want to activate that kinase. So this gives the cell control. That's in my opinion. I think you're just wondering why they even signal in the first place. Like what, what the purpose of them signaling in the first place is as compared. You already have a pathway or a way to do the free privacy kinase. Why do you need an extra way to do it? You know? Well, okay. That, okay. Uh, I think it's better. Uh, um, you know, with growth, with growth factors and cytokines aren't really uh, equally distributed through all matrices. So, I, you know, they, they bind to the matrix, and if, if, if you have a growth factor that binds better to collagen, say, any place where there's lots of collagen, there's going to be more of that growth factor. Um, I think the ability to regulate when an adhesion molecule responds to the, the growth factor. I mean, it's an interesting question. Actually, it tells me you're really thinking about this. And I'm also BSing here and saying, I don't, I don't really know what the, you know, evolutionarily uh, never really thought about it that way, but it's a really good question. Okay. Um, you know, just try and move kind of quickly, and I probably will end up omitting most of the road GTPA stuff at the end because you, you've already, you're familiar with the role of GAFs, GAPs, and GDIs. Um, but We'll talk about, um, let me just, or not talk about, I just want to give you an overview of some of these signaling processes, like you, you were just asking about, that can be uh, regulated by integrins on a as-needed basis, okay? They include proliferation, apoptosis, or the inhibition of apoptosis in a lot of cases, actual cell migration, cell spreading, and mechanotransduction, that is the ability of cells to respond to mechanical stimulation. So most of the cells in your body don't sit static. For any of you who've done tissue culture and you put your dish in the incubator and your cell sits there and doesn't move, that really doesn't happen in the body. The endothelial cells that line your blood vessels, every time your heart pumps and your blood pressure goes up and then back down, your endothelial cells that are bound to the basal lamina of your blood vessels are getting stretched and relaxed, stretched and relaxed. Every time you move your muscle, um, every time you walk, fluid in your inside your bones squishes back and forth across the osteoblasts and the osteocytes. So they're always being uh, stimulated by, by mechanical signals. And so this topic of mechanotransduction um, is a very important one and uh, is controlled a lot through deciding when or when not 
stimulate the tyrosine kinase activity. Um, and by the way, it's not just tyrosine kinase, well, it's purine and creamine kinase. Um, being able to turn that on when you need it to be on. Okay, so that brings us to a topic that I do want to spend a couple minutes on called uh, outside in and inside out signaling. Okay, so outside in signaling is the kind of signaling you're used to. It's a growth factor, say, on the outside of the cell binding to a, a, a growth factor receptor and transducing a signal inside the cell. Pretty straightforward. Less intuitive is what inside-out signaling is. And that is just what it sounds like. The ability of something in the cytoplasm inside the cell to bind to the cytoplasmic domain of a transmembrane molecule and cause a change in the conformation outside the cell. So at the beginning, you asked that really good question about do we just have you know, do we cluster, basically do we cluster integer molecules together? Yes, we do, but we do even more than that. We, we cluster them together, but we also, and so obviously the more you have, the tighter you're going to adhere to a matrix protein, but we also have the ability to modulate something that's referred to as avidity. So affinity is just a measure of the dissociation constant between two molecules. And so obviously if you have one integrin or you have 10,000 integrins, that's going to affect the affinity of that group of integrin molecules. So regulating affinity, pretty straightforward. Um, you change the conformation, you increase the affinity for the matrix. Uh, you bring and integrins together, you're not going to have much affinity. You bring 10,000 together, you're going to have a much higher affinity for the matrix. But we also have this concept of avidity. And so avidity is a word that you don't hear as often as affinity, but avidity refers to this overall collective effect that includes as one component what the affinity of each individual molecule is for the matrix, how many of those molecules there are, and then there's also this sort of third component besides confirmation, number clustered together, but it's how they interact with molecules in the cytoplasmic domain that in some way we don't fully understand can make them even bind even more tightly to the extracellular matrix. And it's quite often when they have this very high avidity interaction, which is, which is this, some, one component is just a pure affinity of molecules for each other, but there's also this sort of intangible thing that we don't fully understand that refers to as avidity. So when you have a high avidity interaction, it's, it's even harder to pull, let's, let's, let's think of the cell binding to a When you have a very high avidity Interaction, it's even harder to pull that cell off the substrate than if you just had lots of integrins that were turned on, clustered together. There's something else. There's something about cytoplasmic regions of a cluster of molecules that have a high affinity that they're sort of even stronger than the sum of their parts. If that makes sense. And what that something is appears to be what we, gen what we in general refer to as post ligand binding events. So after you've already found your matrix protein and you're binding to it very tightly, you make it even tighter. And I've never thought of a good analogy from real life for this. One day I will. But until then, um, 
will just sort of leave it with this idea that the way that the molecules present in the cytoplasm interact with these cytoplasmic tails somehow makes this binding interaction even stronger. And, and it's these high avidity interactions that when they occur, that's when the signal transduction activity of these molecules, these groups of molecules, tends to be at its highest. So it's this, this sort of amorphous concept of avidity versus affinity is just something I want you to be aware of. Um, and, and the way outside uh, 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 in signaling contributes to that is pretty obvious. Um, these molecules, matrix molecules, bind to, to activated integrins, um, and they transduce signals across the membrane into the cytoplasm. We know that it can adhesion can regulate proliferation. We all, I think we all know that um, we've all heard of the concept of uh, substrate-dependent cell growth. Most non-cancerous, most non-transformed cells require adhesion to a substrate in order to proliferate. Rather than cell culture, and trypsinize the cell off in addition to holding in suspension, do that for more than two hours, they're going to die. They certainly won't proliferate. So they have to be adhered to a substrate. And that's because the adhesion to the substrate is triggering reasons to that kind of signaling pathway that promotes cell proliferation. And there are a couple of molecules you should, you should be aware of. You really don't need to memorize these. It would be good to know a few of the names as examples. But um, there are three kinases in particular that uh, provide a sort of an extrinsic source of tyrosine kinase activity for the integrin. One is called integrin link kinase, and one is uh, called focal adhesion kinase. So those are two kinases. And then there's a whole other group of molecules represented by, in this example, a molecule called paxillin, which itself doesn't have any tyrosine kinase, but acts as an adapter protein. Talon, I showed you in an earlier slide, is another example of an adapter protein. An adapter protein is a protein um, like a module, uh, that's analogy technology, like, a, like when, you, when you have a space station up in space and you need to attach a, um, a space capsule with astronauts in it to the space station so they can dock. You have this special piece on the space station where the space capsule can dock and astronauts can crawl through there. scaffolding structure to which other things can attach. Um, it just so happens, I've talked a lot about tyrosine kinases, focal adhesion kinases and tyrosine kinase, but this other guy, integral kinase, is, is actually a serine 3 amine kinase. So I want you to be aware of the serine 3 amine kinases, the tyrosine kinases, um, and the adapter proteins, as among those proteins at the cytoplasmic face of the membrane that contribute to altered avidity, how tightly they adhere to the substrate and what sort of signals they transduce. So um, everybody's putting their stuff away, so you're here tired of listening to me. Um, so I'll stop here and 
I think what I'll do, we'll just talk about um, focal adhesion kinase as an example before I talk about cell-cell interactions on Friday. And I'm going to leave all of this bit from here to the end um, on row GTPases for you to just look at on your own. Okay? I'm not going to talk about it. You've heard about GTPases. Even though I'm not going to talk about it, look through those slides because I will ask you exam questions in which you need to understand the concept of how GTPases work in general, like that they have an active and an inactive confirmation based on whether GTP or GDP is bound. But you've had this now, right? Even this semester, so I'm not going to go over it. But I do expect you to, to, to be able to address that in exam questions. Okay? Good. I'm done. Maybe I need to 